0: Provokey and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Hokey Carmichael is a producer, director, author, and bamboo rod builder. Growing up as the son of one of America's most cherished songwriters, Hoagie is no stranger to the pressures of passing on legacies. In 1968, he met bamboo rod builder, Edmund Everett Garrison, where he would eventually chronicle the work of one of fly fishing's greats. You can find this video in the members section of anchoredoutdoors.com. Sign up today and get your first month free. You can cancel at any time. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Norvice. From their original 1970s prototype to their new legacy stainless steel vise, Norvice has been committed to one thing, efficiency. The company's long-standing slogan, tie better flies faster, truly encompasses what the Norvice fly tying system does. The good folks at Norvice believe you deserve to tie your flies consistently and in less time because of the ease and benefits engineered into this outstanding tying system. For more information, visit norvice.com, that's www.nor-vice.com, and check them out on YouTube to see how you can maximize your tying time by relying on the functions and benefits of the tested and true Norvice. Can you hear me okay?
1: I can hear you okay.
0: Oh good. Is it quiet or I'm not that experienced with phone interviews?
1: No, no. No, you're perfect. perfect. Yeah. Perfect.
0: I was so embarrassed and horrified when I came to see you in New York and <laughs> realized we got halfway through our episode and My mic wasn't plugged in. It was one, I think it was my top, in my top three least favorite moments of having this podcast Mm. to date. (laughs) Well, stuff happens. It does. It does. So let me just, I I am rolling. Mm. So let me just set the, the stage for my listener. Yeah. I and for you, you know, I don't do any of these interviews over the phone because I believe that if you're going to hear someone's story, you need to look them in the eye. But uh, Mm -hmm. it's so hard for me to get to New York and neither of us are getting any younger and you've had these life changes, you know, and I just thought to myself, you know what, damn it, I've got to put my pride aside and and I, I really, I can still see your office in my head, and I can still yeah, s- yeah. smell Manhattan, and I can still see your face, so I feel like yeah. I'm still there.
1: Well, that's nice of you to say that. Um I'm actually in North Carolina right now um producing this musical using my father's music and we have two shows today in fact so um not until two o'clock my time is the first one, so this is perfect for me you know if you can understand me um i'm i'm ready
0: yep i've I've got gotcha. you so the biggest change is obviously you've had You've had a change in health. Uh, you sound a lot different than when I had spoke yeah, to you before. But but I still can hear, you know, your timbre and your voice, and I know that it's you. But, right. Hoagie, what happened?
1: Well, um, I, I started to have a lisp uh, back in August. Went to the doctor when I came back from salmon fishing on the Caskopedia, and They said, oh, and they went and did a biopsy, and it was cancer of the um, tongue (laughs) down at the base of my tongue. So I went in for radiation, 35 of them, and chemo, and then they did a biopsy, and the cancer has gone. And then three or four weeks later, my stomach started, and I'm not going to go into details, but I started to bleed from my stomach. It's called upper GI bleed. And they went in there and did a biopsy and jammed if I didn't have a form of cancer in my stomach. Oh, my god! So uh, back in for radiation. And radiation, you don't feel it. You can't touch it. You can't see it. But man, oh man, it is no joke, and so I've basically felt semi horrible <laughs> since December. It's only in the last—I mean, I've been to the hospital emergency four times since you know this year, and seventeen packs of blood, and you know all that right. stuff. So, so my um, I mom and my wife have saved my backside. She's just been there every second for me, you know? And I was I lost fifty five pounds, but I was strong enough to get through it. And now I do tongue exercises. My stomach is fine. There's no cancer there anymore. And um, it's just getting my use of my tongue back the way it was, and that's a long process. So that in a nutshell is what I've gone through. It's been hell, but uh, I'm alive and enjoying, enjoying myself.
0: I just can't even imagine, especially because you're so well-spoken and I just can't even imagine having to learn speaking over again.
1: Well, that's basically as easy. swallowing, swallowing yeah, yeah. and managing saliva. Managing saliva is a big one. Your tongue is not just there to stick it out at people; It's there? <laughs> For three or four reasons that are crucial, and um, mine is uh, compromised on the left side, but it's improving. Uh, eight ten weeks ago, you probably could not have understood me. So,
0: let's start the scene with um, with where you were born. And raised and if you're willing to tell me when you were born that would be nice as well.
1: You, you ask me the questions I'll tell you no lies.
0: Okay, Hoagie, how old are you?
1: I am uh, 81, born 1938 in Los Angeles.
0: Into a show family I assume?
1: Yes, uh, my father was working at Paramount and um, writing songs And uh, he was yet to make his first movie, but yeah, we were in L.A., went back to New York for a year or so, and then Los Angeles until I was 20, almost 23, and then I moved to New York.
0: Okay, now it, it's been almost three years since I came to see you. I remember because I was I was in my Isn't first it
1: really. What?
0: Yeah, I was in my oh. first trimester. Remember I was pregnant and so tired.
1: Yep, I do. I so do. <laughs> I, so I could time
0: it all around that. And uh I don't remember everything, but I do remember you saying something about being in a studio when you were growing up?
1: Well, yes. My father made 11 films and often wrote the music for the films. And um, we were in those studios uh, often as children being babysit by people like Victor Mature and all sorts of other people. So, yeah, I kind of... I don't want to say I grew up in Hollywood studios, but it was uh, very common for us to sit around and and watch the band perform, which is that and many other things is so rare. And I got to tell you, April, I've been sick for a while this year, and I thought many, many times of how privileged and fortunate I have been in my life to not be one of those children in Yemen or Syria or Germany or Japan. I mean, it was just, uh, why me? And to be healthy and as been... <laughs> But here I am, 81 years old and pretty healthy right now.
0: And still working, apparently.
1: Oh boy, you bet. I'm producing a musical I'm producing a musical using my father's music called Stardust Road and um we're in North Carolina, the marvelous little theater. We have two shows today, so I'm I'm happy.
0: Well let's jump right into your fishing. Did you grow up fishing?
1: No. Uh my father had no interest in fishing. I was able to talk him into taking me to the Sierra Nevada Mountains once. I mean, we sat the boat and threw threw stuff out there. I don't remember catching anything. Although there was a a restaurant out in San Fernando Valley that had a big pond, and you could put a dough ball on a hook, and you could catch a foot of trout about 10 inches long on essentially every cast and then you paid for the trout and ate it Uh, and I came back with you know 10 or 12 of them you're supposed to come back with 2 and I thought ooh this is (laughs) (laughs) no it was a woman it was a woman that introduced me to fishing fly fishing in 1967
0: oh do tell do tell Uh,
1: we were going to Expo 67 up in Canada and she said, Let's stop in Vermont on the way down and try it. And oh my god it was I hooked I was a golfer. I was actually a rather a good, very good amateur golfer. And um there was so much to learn in fly fishing. I, I caught one fish on the Baton Kill, but I realized I knew nothing about flies and hooks and Rods and reels and entomology and and nothing. And I loved the solace of it, of being out in the river. I don't want to say then, but believe me, I did not think about work or golf or anything. And it was transformative for me. And the next year I put my clubs away, my golf clubs away, at the end of the year, the, the gal left me <laughs> for another fellow, and I thought this is for me, and and it's been for me really ever since. I took golf up again four or five years ago for the fun of it. But no, this this sport has um, never let me down. I was sixteen days, sixteen days on the Grand Cascopedia Without getting a pull on a salmon, and still I was ready on the seventeenth day to go fishing. So (laughs) uh, I I, I love the sport; I can't not. And this year I've been unable to throw a fly anything. So um, this is the first pause year for me since 1967.
0: So you would have been 30 when you started fly fishing then. Around,
1: in and around yeah. 30. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was a stockbroker, oh, and I okay. hated it. Hated it. Oh, my God, did I just like it. But it was a way that I could play golf and competitive golf and skating. And I quit that as well and went up to Boston and worked for a public television station and began to learn about fly fishing and bought my first uh, Fibery Last Slot. And the uh, fluger Rio. So, you no. Know,
0: were you obsessed with fishing?
1: Sam, yeah, I guess so. Um, I knew I had an enormous amount to understand and read about. And I had a mentor who guided me, an angling mentor. And um, I was very fortunate to be among people who were members of clubs and knew where to go and all that and I was a young kid tailing along with people who knew a lot more than I did and who were willing to take me in and um, basically teach me, uh, teach the sports to me.
0: I mean you'd already started, I'm assuming you met your mentor after yeah. you'd started, but who, who was he?
1: Well, there's nobody that anybody's ever heard of. His name was Dudley Soper. Uh, he was a maker of glass rods. Oh. He was as great a dry fly fisherman as ever lived, I promise you.
0: see, I'm so happy I asked about this mentor, even though he may not have a recognizable name. Because all, no. of the, all of these pieces come together, though. So before you'd even met Mr. Garrison, you already had a particular fondness for rod builders and for shops.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, okay. I, I, I never had a bamboo rod in my hand. But I knew that they existed and um, Dudley had one which I finally got to see, was an orifice rod, uh-huh. and I was fascinated by the fact that these were six pieces glued together. How did he do that? And then when I met Mr. Harrison, I was out on the lawn at this fabulous fishing um, club called Tuscalora, and I had my deadly Soper orange, rod and my flugger medal of spiel and oh boy did I feel like the king of the mountain and I looked around and there was this older man and three or four of the members and they all had these beautiful looking bamboo rods and I knew enough to you know wind my line in and quietly put my fiberglass out of the way and walk over to see what the hubbub was about And that turned my head forever because I met Mr. Garrison and I saw those rods and I cast one and I said, okay, this is it.
0: (laughs) Can you please explain to my listener who Mr. Garrison was?
1: Yes. Mr. Garrison was a, a, a mechanical engineer. He um, learned to make fly rods when he was about 30, 35. Uh, had his own tapers, which he figured out with slide rules and um, pen and pencil. And he started to make hand planes rods, not machine-made rods and had a very uh, interesting clientele. He lived in Yonkers, New York, not far from New York City. And his rods, he made about 600 rods. And his rods became, along with Jim Payne and Leonard and F.E. Thomas and several others, this became the Scandard, the Gold standard. I'm not ever going to say that they were the greatest rods made. I have often said Jim Payne made, was the greatest rod builder. But every garrison made rods that were unparalleled, in my estimation. But his, the way he made the rods, with his right hand and his left hand, no machines. Well, he had a, a lathe to fit the ferrules and a and, um, a couple of, you know, drill press, but it was all hand work. And before he died, he taught me much about the crafts. And when he died, I bought the tools, and um, he got me started.
0: You're definitely understated, <laughs> because it couldn't have been easy to get in with him. I just, I remember watching the video and. Thinking to myself, that man—it would take so long to get him to trust somebody to bring them in like that. He just looks so ornery and so cl- shut well, down. Well,
1: that's very—that's very perceptive of you because uh, that's true. Mister um, Harrison didn't need a protege, and Mister Harrison—he wasn't the kind of guy who would close his shop. I was producing a show called Mr. Rogers Neighborhood and
0: Coming up, Hoagie and I continue our conversation. Again, a special thank you to Norvice for making this episode possible. The good folks at Norvice believe that you deserve to expect consistency and efficiency out of your tying system. When tying on the Norvice, you will quickly see the benefits of tying flies while physically spinning the vise. This is a remarkable feature that I strongly recommend watching on the Norvice YouTube channel. There are a lot of great rotary vices on the market, but only the Norvice spins the hook. It's for this reason that it's been said that Norvice is the most innovative fly tying system on the market. Never again do you have to wind slack thread onto your bobbin spool. The Norvice auto bobbin does the work for you. For more information, visit www.norvice.com. That's nor-vice.com and check them out on YouTube to see how you can maximize your tying time by relying on the functions and benefits of the tested and true Norvice. Emerson's tapers were still really renowned. What was so special about them?
1: Uh, That's really hard to explain, but uh, he, he understood there was almost nothing empirical about Everett's tapers. They were all on paper. He figured out load factors, impact factors, stress on bamboo, uh, length versus line weight, <laughs> all that. With skin pain blundered all that. They didn't have that background, taking ah. nothing away from any of those people. Yeah. And Everett when he got his formula for a rod length and a line weight on a piece of paper, he stuck with it. And there is a different feeling to one of Mrs. Garrison's rods than a Jim Payne rod, 8 foot or two-piece. They feel very different. Some like some like Everett's shape better, some don't. And that's fine. But his were um, mechanically... From, a, from an engineer's standpoint, his rods were very different in terms of how the tapers were put together. Jim Payne and Everett were very good friends, but how they went about it was very different.
0: Can you explain to people listening just how this is? This is a loaded question. Pardon the pun, but can you explain the, const- the basic <laughs> construction of a bamboo rod, how it's spliced and glued together to create a... Um, sure. Yeah, thank you. Sure.
1: Sure. Well, it's a piece of bamboo that grows in China. It's split into six pieces. Let's say we're making a chip section. And then it has to be triangulated. And that's done with either a machine or by hand uh, in a groove. And you end up with an equilateral triangle, six of them, that are, um, when you bunch them together, they become a hexagon. And a hexagon of six pieces of something. And they're glued together. And tapered, or uh, well, they're tapered first, sorry, and then um, glued together, and then the glue is taken off, and the six pieces are sanded, and then you put the eyes on and the pharaohs on and the top guide, And I mean, in a very quick minute and a half, that's what it. That's what it is. It's a long piece, tapered, that is six pieces that are nested together and glued, and hopefully will never come apart. <laughs>
0: so, did he only do? Does six... that help? That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you. Did he only do six piece six sides? Did he ever do five?
1: He did yeah. no. Never. He tried it once. I shouldn't say never. And uh, there's a stronger side to a fight. Mr. Garrison liked the idea that from any angle, side, even underhand, overhand, left side, right side, you've got the same six-piece feeling.
0: I thought I heard you say Mr. Rogers, that you did the show Mr. Rogers. I did. Is that? Mm-hmm. Am I thinking the children's show, Mister Rogers?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like it.
0: it's a beautiful that's day it. in the neighborhood. A beautiful day in the. neighborhood. Oh, da-
1: a beautiful day for labor. Want <gasps> to be mine? Want to be mine? Want to mean, be my neighbor.
0: Cry! That was you. Mm-hmm. You did that.
1: Well, I was. Yeah, he <gasps> was. He was actually my minister for my uh, first marriage, <laughs> oh. and a very good friend, and. Um, quite a he's having a marvelous renaissance you know there's a postage stamp with him and Tom Hanks is doing a movie it'll be out in November and there's been a documentary yeah Fred oh
0: my goodness I grew up on that I mean that was the show I and I actually played it for my daughter so since I've seen you I've had a daughter (laughs) and um, and she loves it that is amazing why didn't you make a fishing video about yourself?
1: Hmm, why would I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> i leave that to somebody else if that's important. I mean, I, I finished one not too long ago, about sparsely hackle, uh, about a 35, 40 minutes. Film. Uh, I, I had filmed them in the eighties, and finally decided to put it together two years ago. <laughs> and um, no, I mean I'm more I think in other people' um, endeavor, other people's endeavors. Maybe then you know I, move my, I I don't. I can't answer that question. I guess.
0: Yeah, I was um, just always surprised it, that you didn't end up in front of the camera because you could have.
1: Well. Maybe I will.
0: Um, okay. i just like to pick your brain a little bit more about that video because it really was a very special video for me. I felt like I was being invited into a very private time in mm-hmm. history. That's just, mm-hmm. um, it actually saddens me that that things get lost and forgotten so fast. I'd like to make that video be curriculum for people getting into fly fishing. I think that everyone
1: should watch well, it. That's exactly why I made it. You hit it because I knew he was getting on. He was in his late seventies, and I wanted to, as I said earlier, mark it down. I wanted to, for people, I wanted this, this uh, man's work not to be lost. And um, that's not selfish. That is just um, me. I think, if I may say so, recognizing that if I let this go much longer, nobody would ever see it or learn from it. So that's why I did it. Well,
0: it sounds really similar with your purchase of the shop as well. He was going to hand that. I'm I'm assuming that shop would have been handed down to you. Is that a a safe assumption? Oh, yes. But you chose to purchase it.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, it's about all the money I had, actually. <laughs> but, yeah, for about $6,000, I I bought everything and uh, moved it. Well, I made, made some lots in that basement, but then moved it, yeah. And where, where and, is and, it and, and, and you must understand, you must understand that, For me, I I didn't know what I needed to know when Mr. Harrison died, but I left everything exactly where it was when he died. And I began to see the causal relationship between that piece of metal there and that piece of wood there, if you understand me. And if the two were that one marries with that one and I understand now how you know all that um, well it's like the, the, the shop I gave it to the Catskill Museum Catskill Fly Fishing Center and it's the sort of centerpiece of their rod making um, area uh, and that's where it belongs Garrison was a Catskill rod maker essentially and um, people have learned a lot and seem to enjoy the experience of just standing in front of the bench, let alone touching everything. <laughs> so, uh, you know, with the book and the film and everything, I gave everything uh, to them. There's education standing lying right there if one wants to take advantage of it.
0: You went on to write an, more books after that. I'm not sure how many, though. How many books have you written about fly fishing? Five. Can Five. you um, go ahead and just... Yeah, I know yeah. Atlantic Salmon is an overlaying theme. Uh, what else have you written about?
1: Well, I wrote a two-volume set about the Grand Cascopedia River in Canada, Salmon River. And it's really more than just about the river. It's a... It's a Mm, if I may say so, uh, it, it, it sits in a cradle of history about the sport. And then in between volume one and volume two, I wrote a book called Eight by Carmichael. And there's some stories in there, but the real contribution is, again, if again, I may say so, is a long piece about Jim Payne. I had thought for years, why is there nobody doing this? I mean, this man was um, in a, almost in a class by himself. So I I, I, re- I took a rest, a pause, from Cascopedia 1 and 2, and um, wrote this 60-some-odd pages about Jim Payne and had photographs and found photographs and um, tried to explain to people uh, what he meant to the craft and to the sport. And there's some other stories. There's time with Chauncey Lively and the great Vince Marinero, and some things like that. But uh, if there is a contribution, it would be uh, the Jim Payne book. And then what I consider to be a delicious little book called Sidecast, which has um, um a piece in there about white women seem to catch more salmon than men. Yeah. And uh, some some other things. Um, there's quite a bit about women in the sport. Uh, a piece about the Alta, the late Alta River, which I've been to twice in Norway. Caught fish there. And really, eh, I put myself on a short limb, but uh, helped to introduce dry fly fishing to um, the Alta River and large salmon. But the guys When I put a dry fly on uh, with my 14-footer, they frowned, I mean visibly frowned. And once I caught some fish with dry flies, they wanted my dry flies to try. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, you couldn't buy a dry fly in the local shop.
0: No, they frowned and, uh, at all of the in other of the non resident flies. I remember the first time I went to Norway they looked at I think every single fly in my box and told me it was garbage. Yeah. And those well, flies went on to catch fish. I don't know if it's just yeah, fishing or <laughs> yeah.
1: Very but, much so. Very but, much
0: so. Hoagie, were you dead drifting dry flies or were you waking them?
1: Well there's a thing we do in the Grand Cascopedia uh, I can Remember what it's called. Um, you, you you throw the fly over the fish. He doesn't take it. He doesn't take it. And then you pull it back over him and above him, eight to ten feet and then it drift again. And they'll move for it. You, you can't catch a fish on the dry fly unless you present it. And one of the reasons that they Tote hadn't caught fish on dry flies is because they didn't use them. And that's not <laughs> quite true because I'm sure people have used them. I mean, I'm not putting myself as a pioneer here, um, but I was with some uh, wonderful guys, and um, it was an eye-opener. For them, at least. Um, what brought me a lot of enjoyment, <laughs> knowing that... I mean, Lee Wolf told me, years in the oh gosh, 1980 maybe, that the water temperature is 45 degrees or more. An Atlantic salmon will take a dry fly. I I've think Lee this. was right.
0: Yeah, they used yeah. to put a, a lot of emphasis on water temperature. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it's something that's kind of been forgotten. But if you read all the old history books, the temperature was a a major part or a major player in their decision making.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was on the ledo one time where the the water never reached 41 degrees. And uh, it was July. And we caught nothing. You know, if the water gets to be 75 or 8 you're probably going to catch nothing. Uh, it's that 55-degree zone that you want. And, um, you know, give or take. And, um, you know, if, 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 nobody knows why a salmon <laughs> takes a fly anyway. And don't you start to tell me because no, you don't I know. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I know. So uh, why wouldn't they roll to a dry fly? or a wet fly, or a tiny. You know, two years ago, we were using uh, size 22 and 24 hitched two flies, which are, you know, the size of
0: Pretend to know all we want, um,
1: but you said well, something isn't interesting. That wonderful? Is, yeah. me, let me just, isn't that wonderful that we don't know?
0: Yeah, I think so. Well, it definitely keeps me uh, enthusiastic. Yes,
1: yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Let me try this one. Bang! Oh my god, it worked. <laughs>
0: Oh, but then it just consumes your, mem- your your thoughts all day and you get this false confidence and then it doesn't work again for 10 years.
1: That's right. Well, that's right. That's <laughs> right. But so be it. That's okay um, with me.
0: What's the story behind women having more luck? Because you're right, a lot of the record Atlantic salmon have been caught by female anglers.
1: Well, there is this thing, uh, whether you want to believe the science behind it or not, um pheromones. Well, mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, um, funny,
0: I have to cut you off, Hoagie, because something very right. funny happened today. I got a, a package in the mail <laughs> addressed to my husband's mm-hmm. cousin. And I said, I didn't open it because it's not my mail. And I asked Charles what it is. And he said that there are these pheromones for his cousin that he can't get in Canada. And we now have to ship them from here. Apparently they're selling these pheromones for men to help pick up women.
1: I've never heard of that. Uh, That's I'm s- interesting.
0: I'm staring at the package nah. right now. I'm so tempted to open it, but it, I, it's illegal, so I won't. But I'm fascinated yeah, by yeah, the, these pheromones. Yeah. But anyway, continue. Well, do, do tell about pheromones.
1: Pheromones, yeah, pheromones are a, a hormone that only women have. And um, there's been a fair amount of science, uh on this. I, in fact, on the altar Asked the um, the waitress in our little camp if she would put two of these wet flies in her brazier for uh, four hours or so, and she can did. not she
0: just put them in her armpits t- or something? Does it need to be her?
1: No, no, no. Well, she well she walked around with them in there for a while, and then uh, I probably went out and caught a twenty-eight or twenty-six pound salmon. Um, ah. And with and working very hard, I actually had her put the fly on the leader and showed her how, and then slugged it up by putting the hooks in a tree, you know, like kind of, So I wouldn't touch it. Um, <laughs> you can believe it. You cannot believe it. That's okay. But um, if one were to read not just my book, but other pieces of literature, you would see that there um is a, there's a cadre of people in science that um you know believes this can help. Stan Bogdan told me three times, he said, I never go fishing with a woman because she usually outfishes me. <laughs> All right.
0: <laughs> and I can't dispute it because you know I've got some decent yes, fish. Yes, you have. I do hear that there are some manufacturers who are putting pheromones into their baits and into their chemicals. I so, but how do well, you collect pheromones? I don't understand how that works. Like, do you just come scrape? Have of me? And no
1: I have no idea, and really no interest. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'll take my, I'll take my chances. Uh, there is there is something called a presentation, and um, presentation in my mind uh, outranks pheromones. Yeah, you I really agree. You have to put the fly in front of the salmon correctly, for the most part. The process I was talking about earlier.
0: And loose. Is that just how you're retrieving it?
1: Why is it called fast yeah. and loose? Well, because you you
0: What's your involvement these days, Hoagie, with fishing? I, I know this last year has been really hard, but in general, have you do you do you consider yourself part of the fly fishing, quote unquote, industry?
1: Mm, not now. Um, I mean. Books and to countless uh, demonstrations uh, of rod building. I've probably done hundred and fifty. Shinnecock, out in Long Island, where they had the Open two years ago. I was a one handicap club champion, and all that. And once I discovered fly fishing, it, it it just it was like a wave that went over my golfing life and never to be seen again.
0: You to know that there are so many young people coming into fly fishing today who just have no idea about the history, and it's not even their fault in a lot of ways. They, they maybe they it, don't read as much. It's just being lost. It's like this big barrier that that's
1: you have really, you have hit it. Yes, you've yeah. hit the there right on the head because uh, people want information in nine seconds. They they have access to their phones and computers, but they don't have the, seem to have the time to read books the way we did. And you know, the collection of books that come onto the market today are worth about a third of what these books were worth
0: remembered for anything in this sport what would it be?
1: them I tried to help other people understand it and I guess that's where will be paid if, if ever
0: I think you're just all class thank you <laughs> is you're that, very welcome is there something about your or something in your career that I've missed here in this very brief timeline that you wanted to add or just your life in, mm-hmm. in general that I've missed that you wanted to add
1: Well, I I have been very lucky, I can say this, in meeting some of the, quote, giants of the sport, and they have let me in. And if you let a person in, you um, run the risk of uh, allowing that person to disseminate and pass information on. And that is a treasure. And I have um, been one of those people. I, 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 let me just say for a minute that, uh, this is hard to say, but my name, I've, I've known this all my life. My name uh, has been unwittingly a key, a, a door opener. I don't like that, especially, but I have taken advantage of that fact <laughs> and allowed uh, those people who who would pass over other folks and wanted me to go fishing with them or go on a trip or work with them or whatever. And I've, al- I've allowed that to uh, be a way for me to understand some things that other people may now have had the opportunity to understand. And uh, that's been given to me by my father. But um, if I may say so, I've at times tried to take advantage of that. <laughs> yeah. And, it's, and um, there we are.
0: Look, if anything, Hoagie, you're keeping the name alive in, like I said, just the classiest way. So thank you so much for taking the time to share all that with me.
1: Well, I've enjoyed this, April, and um, not very often do you get to uh, pat oneself on the back, but it sounds like I have, so there there we go. Keep it up, keep it up. Long after I'm gone, there'll be people like you who uh, also want to pass this sport on to other people, and bravo, bravo.
0: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.